hey y'all welcome back to click we are in the black box studios for sadly the last time this year i know tears everywhere i'm jayla i'm demetrius or dj i'm jay kills i'm rietta i'm jacob i'm mary grace and again, we're going to have a lot more of us just jumping in and out uh, today. Um, but, you know, this is going to be a fun, interesting uh, episode. We're here asking two of our favorite people ever some really tough questions, some lighthearted questions, just like so y'all can understand, but also us uh, as a class understand like the creation of the class and why we're here and like things you want us to learn and things that we actually did learn and everything like that. So yeah, we're just going to jump right into Passing the Remote. Hey, Passing the Remote. All right, so first we would like to introduce our two special guests. First, we have Dr. Charles. You have a little intro about you, Um, yeah. Uh, what y'all want me to say on my intro? <laughs> like, why are you important to this podcast? I mean, I why, why are you important? Why are you, why are you here? I mean, um, I'm here because y'all asked me to be or because we suggested it in class. But like, um, I teach the class, the Black Sitcom class that they've been talking about all semester long and um, that I've listened to every single episode. So we should have a fun conversation today, I hope. Um, what kind of other stuff do you do, like when you're not teaching? The- um, I'm a coffee connoisseur, um, and I love sports, all of them, or pretty much all of them. I can't stand UFC. Um, that's trash. Uh, my Panthers lost today, um, and uh, they lost by three with the clock. And I'm not mad at Graham Pinot for missing that 52-yard. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so I'm a Carolina Panthers fan, you know, keep pounding. I'm also a Tar Heels fan. Go Heels. Um, yeah, so I love sports. I love all things black, you know, that kind of stuff. And we also have our favorite T.A., Ty. Hi. Introduce did yourself. You I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like, oh, wait, you people can see me. Um, yeah, so this is my second time on the podcast. I'm Ty. I'm a graduate student. Um, I mean, you know, I'm here because Dr. Charles looked at me and she was like, you could be there, right? I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so I drove in for this. <laughs> and I'm not writing my papers right now because I love you guys and I want to have fun minus F minus F you know we're a nice distraction you know absolutely all right and so we just kind of want to talk about during this section um with our teachers and like each other about some of our favorite moments from the class and from the podcast so anyone just shout out your favorite moment and we can go from there favorite moment of the class it's not my top top but it's the first one that came to my mind was my first click episode and I learned that it's not homage it's homage. Homage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guys, my life, it changed. So. Although I will say the first episode was so lit. Like, people were calling me like, yo, I listened to their podcast. Like, they were so lit. Anyway, so, like, I'm with you. That was kind and of Shout out to J. Kels for being, you know, our pioneer. You know, you know what I'm saying? Pioneer. I try. <laughs> I do what I can. Um, but, yeah, that first episode was, like... Really, it was like oh, it was this is so, what we gotta. It was such like <laughs> yeah. black girl magic. You, it was so so much uh, such organic conversation. Um, Ty and I were pretty hype about it. I can't yeah. lie, you know, we were really, you know, um, the conversation, the content was good. You know, y'all should go back and check that out. That episode was really great. I'll never forget the the teaser talking about a potato. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. 
when was, is that record? Right. <laughs> it was Brie who did that, isn't it? Yeah, or, of course. Or Matteo or somebody. But sometimes you're a baked potato. I, for one, am a baked potato. <laughs> I never, but I didn't understand if I'm I was supposed potato. to be a crinkle cut fry or a baked potato. My my inclination was a crinkle cut fry because, well, Zaxby's. But yeah, like, <laughs> those are good. But I think they, like, society wants you to be a crinkle cut fry and we in our truest forms are baked potatoes. You're saying aesthetically? Like, aesthetically. They want you to be a crinkle cut fry, but but fry. you're saying well I'm, I'm a baked potato like I'm wholesome this is all going like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the bus people told me I was like a, just a straight cut fry and I was like oh this basic <laughs> but uh yeah um, one of my favorite moments was um again on my podcast too I think a lot of our favorite moments are like when we actually had to like be the ones to lead I think and don't put that out there like <laughs> you probably it's your favorite moment because you like your is it you like the sound of your voice oh no 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 no! I hate it listen to I hated the sound of my voice I called it unseasoned and just oh. all this other oh yeah she had that whole, <laughs> whole spiel about that but I, I really did enjoy like listening like like one of well it was like three whatever to like just our opinions and like having that discussion about like black criminality and just the different point of views that we all brought to the table but the part again it was like a random off like topic part but I was talking about like how my hair was braided back and that became the teaser and I was like wow this is this is me this is my thoughts and I just like like my moment is like oh I got a moment to shine a little bit because my voice was a part of the teaser which led them to the our episode which one of the things I really love about the teasers is that oftentimes they are um, sort of a stream of consciousness kind of thing so you have to go and listen in order to know what they're what folks are talking about and I thought that that was something that you guys did reasonably like pretty great throughout the semester like you'd have to pay attention in order to you know know what's happening in the episode um i got two uh one funny and one more serious uh favorite moments in the class uh my number one is was at the beginning of the semester like one of the first days of class uh when we were talking about spotify yeah for those of you who weren't there uh <laughs> dr charles had uh you know she she had she was under the impression that it was spotify rather than spotify um so that <laughs> was, she had to have said to you and you didn't correct her either so i was like because they're not good human beings <laughs> the whole time she was saying well, like dr charles doesn't like spotify because she's like yeah whatever spotify <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's not my platform so mm-hmm. but the priceless part Jacob you suffer bringing this up but the, the priceless part was like all of y'all's faces at the exact same time y'all were looking at me like what is she talking about and then it dawned on someone that oh she really thinks it's pronounced yeah, this way because yeah. you kept saying that that class and we were just like I think we were talking about how like what platform, what platform? to put the podcast yeah. and so you kept repeating it and I think about like the fifth time we were like someone oh, she <laughs> who finally told you I, I can't remember all oh, she, she was just all free. like why are you guys looking at me yes. yeah that's what happened. I, I said, yeah, I said at some point I was like, why are y'all looking at me like that? Like, you know, y'all aren't good human beings. I was going to say one more thing. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, on my Instagram bio for the Click podcast, I said that one of my passions was making podcasts on Spotify. <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna go check wow. it out. He's rude. Um, <laughs> but um, my other 
kind of like more like this, I actually like gained something from this was kind of the more awkward moments in class when, you know, someone would say something, you know, kind of problematic and everyone was kind of like still in their seats, you know, just kind of looking at you like Dr. Charles was going to say, and then there'd be this like awkward moment of silence, like while we all waited. And, um, but, uh, hearing like how Dr. Charles like addressed things like that with like such grace, um, was like, I don't know. It was really cool to see. It helps me in my own dialogue with people. So man. Yes. Okay. So like, the class, I'm so sorry, but I have to brag on my teacher. Oh, so my. like the class we just had before the break, we talked about something that's also very important to me. And just hearing Dr. Charles's like being able to see her passion and hear her passion, but also feel her passion. It just kind of took me over the edge, y'all. Like I was like right there with her in the moment. What I were we cried. talking about? We were talking about religion and stuff. And oh. why faith is so important to you, but it's also very important to me. And so I'm a crybaby, so I'm shook <laughs> that I didn't cry in class. But yeah, that was another favorite of mine. Yeah, like those conversations like led to a whole argument at my Thanksgiving dinner. You know, my mom had to tell me to like, you know, calm down and everything. Like it got pretty heated because we started talking about Fonzie. And we, and that's someone we talk about a lot in class. And just the, the conversation I had at that dinner table and the conversation I had in the classroom were too complete. I was, I was on the wrong side of the argument with my family because they were like, my cousin was like, well, they know what they signed up for. It was the sign of the times and like all this other stuff. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so her aunt showed up and she's like, oh, someone's gonna be on Jayla's team now. And I was, I'm like, it was just so many like things like me going head to head with my dad. We always argue, but this is the first time I took like an actual topic I learned at Auburn mm-hmm. and, and gave it to my family. And the whole family had this, except for my grandma. She was just in there like, oh my gosh. But like, it was just like something I keep, like, I keep thinking of these topics that we have in class and bring them to my parents and be like, hey, what do y'all think about this? And we have deep conversations. So that's one thing I really do appreciate mm-hmm. about the class. Anyone else? I mean, I feel like I've had the same thing happen for me with less family, like talking to my friends about a lot of things that we talked about in class. Like the concept that I liked the most that I think Dr. Charles said multiple times was like, language can't be divorced from the body that's using it. And when you said that, I was just like, dang, yeah. Because I've had so many conversations with my friends about, you know, about the N-word or about other slurs because I went to high school in a Southern town. Like, people are very... Uh, non-careful with their words and so it's inspired me to have a lot of conversations with people about the difference in like your relationship to someone and the relationship that kind of race creates between people and just like all sorts of differences that give them an actual reason other than like what should be enough which is hey like black people say you shouldn't say the n-word but then to go from there and be like but this is why it's different when you say it i will say um there have been several classes that I've taught um, since since graduating that language always tends to come up, you know, as an English professor, you know, we pursue language. Right. And so um, which is to say we pursue um, the, that form of communication, what various forms of communication. Right. And so it's always difficult to get people to understand the nuances of language but it's not in in the so you you guys are mostly millennials i take it um but like with you guys it's a little different right like you seem to absorb the fact that um language matters that words mean things shout mm-hmm. out to crystal west um that words mean things and that um language is never divorced from the body that's using it right so you guys tend to 
absorb that more quickly than do some people who are zennials or generation X, you know, generation Xers or, or people like that. Um, and I kind of appreciated that because I noticed throughout the semester, you guys would um, pause and, you know, sort of correct each other or correct yourselves in the middle of a thing. And that demonstrates that kind of knowledge. So shout out to y'all for that, because it's not always easy to do that. And then it's something else when you take that thing that you learn in an English classroom and you, um, use it out in the world, right? Like that's pretty heartwarming. So, you know, I'm over here with chills, like, oh, we about to be better people out here. Like, you know, our small class hopefully can help the world. But also like, so we can also talk about like our non-favorite moments as well. But like, do y'all have any, like, you know, our two teachers in the room, do y'all have two non-favorite, any favorite non us tongue twister. Do y'all have any moments from this class that were not your favorites? That were not our favorites? Not your favorites. Was it like us like, oh, so y'all didn't read today like type of moment? Oh, well, I mean <laughs> anytime like we wonder whether or not somebody read, it's like it's awkward. And I don't like being awkward, like it, it makes me uncomfortable, like I start to pitch. Um so like I don't I don't know that I had any anything else like this is awful. Please leave me alone. So those folk who know me, who've been taught by me, right? Like, uh, they know I don't do awkward, right? Which is a long, which is a roundabout way of saying when I feel uncomfortable, right? I think everyone should feel uncomfortable. Like, I, I cannot feel this alone. I also get embarrassment by proxy, right? So, like, if you do something ridiculously embarrassing, I feel like I did that thing, right? And um, it's very uncomfortable. And I, which is why I tend to explain that at the beginning of the semester. So for the one or two days that you guys didn't do, any reading I was like oh my what is wrong with people and so I'm like standing there blinking at y'all and y'all are blinking at me and then and the worst part uh, I was just about to say the worst part is when someone pulls out a laptop like like they know the document they're going to control <laughs> <laughs> I literally I'm not even lying I looked up in class and you said a phrase I chopped it in and I was like I spared her I was like I know what we're talking about oh, yeah it's like you guys are trash for that like I was just like what is wrong with people and then, um, so then I was thinking, you guys are doing college wrong. This is a pro tip for someone who's been through college, right? Pro tip, right? Particularly if you're an English major, don't y'all tell nobody I said this, right? But there should never be a circumstance under which an English major, a group of English majors go to class and no one has done the reading, right? Like pro tip, get you a group of people who at least someone has done a portion of this week's reading more to the point. If it's something long, which our longer stuff, y'all seem to be actually more into the novels that we read, the plays, you guys seem to absorb those pretty quickly. Um, but if it's something longer, you know, break that joint apart. Like, you know, Hey, you get chapter one, but you know, has to be a good group of people, but I'm saying no one to do the reading. That was uncomfortable. That should be on my, the list of shit. Teachers can't stand. Like we don't like that. You know what? I should create that list. Of, <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> like, publish. and share it. Make Shit, professors can't stand. It will go viral. Yeah, probably. Well, something like again, like no, one of my non-favorite moments, of course, like writing that 15-page paper. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm 
like 12 to 15 pages because I hit that 12 and I said this is I like I freaked out a little bit I was like what's supposed to be 15 I kept telling myself 15 so I can at least like overstep like the 12 because if I would have heard 12 I would have been sitting at page 10 like Well, Jayla, what else do you have to say? I don't know. I think my my favorite part, well, two of my favorite parts of the class was one, after I turned the paper in, I just laid in my bed. I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to sleep. (laughs) And then uh, one of my other favorite moments was I actually never watched uh, a different world so when we watched all of the um Welcome. all of the intros of the, of the uh of shows and i saw like and i heard you know aretha franklin's mm-hmm. voice on, on. On, on the intro i was like this is actually one of my favorite intros of black tv now come so, on and i listen to it like all the time now so absolutely like, and yeah that's crazy my, and this is what my paper was about a different world and it I, was, hated I, it. It. I hated it i hated it oh wow. i literally got so tired of doing talking about a different world and doing research I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to watch another episode. I'm done. It's over with. And then, like, literally, like the next week, I was like, all right, we'll we end away. Let me Absolutely. come back to y'all again. Black I literally keep rewatching because I love their character progression, but just also their relationship progression. So I was just like, oh, and I think they did a great job of developing those characters. Shout out to Debbie Allen. Um, but like, and and the writers, right? Like, they did a good job developing those characters. And yeah, I recall your paper about. HBCU culture and things like that. You know, was was one of my least favorite moments. Like just about the class in general is just like when we get into a good conversation mm-hmm. and then it's over. Class is over. It's one forty-five. Yeah. I kid you not. And then like it's we still, yeah. We always we get into the meat of it when it's time to go. Yeah, and then we can't always go back to that exact yeah. spot. Mm-hmm. That was kind of frustrating um, to to us actually because we would get to something so meaty and we could see you guys grappling with something and then we'd be like, yes, and we should come back to it. And then life would happen and we could mm-hmm. always get back to it. Um, but yeah, that was, that was tough for us too. We didn't, we didn't. So that just sort of goes to show that that class needs to be longer, right? Mm-hmm. It needs to be one of those, you know, mm-hmm. Tuesday, Thursday situations. Okay. So real talk though. All right. So welcome back to Real Talk. Um, a new family member just showed up to the table. So introduce yourself. Um, my name is Ayana. I am a senior in the So let's get started. So like the first question that I think everyone has is like, you know, why did you choose to create this um, not TV show class? <laughs> So why did I choose to create the class? So this, it started as a conversation with a colleague over dinner because, you know, we're nerds and that's what we do. Um, And I was thinking about how much I learned from black sitcoms without um, having an actual instructor, as it were, apart from my family, right? And so it started as one, people would want to take it. Let's be real. Like people would see black sitcom and be like, Oh, does that mean we're watching such and such? You know, and as a matter of fact, I remember going to um, a BSU meeting one day and announcing the classes. And then and then folks just kept coming up to me going, are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about that? And that would be the determining factor on whether or not they were taking the class. Like, are you going to teach such and such an episode? I mean, such and such a sitcom. And I would be like, no, you know, or people were already thinking about what they wanted to write about people who were not English majors, which I thought was interesting. But um, that plus. Um, if I'm honest, I grew up in a home, um, I grew up in foster care. So I didn't have, I didn't come from a two parent home and I didn't, you know, I, there were a lot of ruptures and things like that, but I also have a very loving family, right? It ultimately resulted in a very loving family. So I found 
quite a bit of respite in, in several black sitcoms, right. You know, that gave me either an unending, even if painful kind of hope. And, but they also gave me like, um, a respite from the reality of foster care. And so, um, I wanted someone else to experience that with me. And I had already previously taught a course someplace else on, um, becoming Huxtable and talking about, um, the HBCU agenda and, and, Cosby's a, a different world. And so those classes tend to go over well because things you do in contemporary con- with contemporary kinds of context, um, they, I, I like using something people already know to t- teach them about something they may not know. And so that's, that was the, the impetus for the class. Now, as to why Ty decided to <laughs> TA for it, you'd have to ask her. Yeah. Um, so of course, like I didn't, I, I, I signed up to kind of TA for this class and like I made it a goal to do an independent study of Dr. Charles um, because doing black studies, even as a black woman, um, is shout very new to me. Women. Like shout out to black <laughs> women. Like, um, but it's, it's very new to me. I didn't come from a university as an undergraduate where I had these sort of classes available to me. It took until my second semester in graduate school where I even started to um, get involved with black studies and that was through Claudia Rankin's Citizen in, in American Lyric, which is Come on. a great read. Somebody should put that <laughs> shout out. You know, put that in y'all's receipt. Somebody yeah. go cop Claudia, uh, Claudia Rankin's Citizen. Yes, it's probably one of the most foundational texts for our current state um, in America and globally. Um, but yeah, so being that this is sort of my, it became my entryway into black studies. Um, I got to be in proximity with like Dr. Charles and our black girl magic. Um, (laughs) but I mean like, but facts. Um, and I found that being in the presence of other black women, um, and being allowed to, um, delve into something that has been foundational to like my upbringing. So I grew up on black American sitcoms. Um, it's been rejuvenating, um, it's been as much uh, an act of love for myself as it is feeding me intellectually. Come on, um, soundbite. So, <laughs> but I, I, I was just thankful to have the opportunity to sign on and then get the chance to interact with all of you guys um, and watch how you think and see how you're grappling with it because it's, it's really admirable for me um, because I come from a social responsibility communication background. Like this is how things work. Mm-hmm. Here is how we influence people now let's think for ourselves and figure something else out. So mm-hmm. I'm just excited. Like I was just excited to do it. Um, so uh, in like creating the class, I think this is just so the listeners can have more background. Um, do you think you can talk about like um, some of your like teaching philosophy and like your pedagogy a little bit and how that influenced um, how you taught the class? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> Two things. One, um, you guys did an episode where you talked about um, at the very end. You talk you talked about my teaching pedagogy, uh, which I appreciated very much. Right, uh, one it shows you're listening, and two, um, several of you have had me before, and so you know that um, a lot of people come into um, the professoriate, you know, for various reasons, right, and. I came into black studies um, as idealistic as what I'm about to say sounds, right? I came into black studies and therefore, by extension, the academy, not in an effort to, um, you know, be this well-read and even more human you know, person, as much as I came into black studies to use the literature as an avenue to change the world. Right. And it's really idealistic to say something like that. And I recognize the limits of what I'm saying. Right. But but ultimately, I wanted whatever I did in life to change the world. I recall a time when my brother, my brother's 13, 
I recall a time when he was little and he asked, um, when I was in my PhD program, he said, Hey, you're going to be a doctor. And I was like, that's what they tell me, you know? And he's like, if you can be a doctor, I can be a doctor, which I don't really know how to feel about that. Cause I was like, what are you trying to say? But, um, but he said he was maybe five years old at the time. And he said, um, I said, will you be a doctor of medicine? And he said, well, well, what kind of doctor are you? And I said, well, you'll be the kind of doctor who helps people feel better. And I'll be the kind of doctor who helps people get along with each other. And that was the first time I sort of had to break down the thing that I thought about teaching and, and what I wanted to do for someone who is as young as five, and as precocious as he was. Right. My teaching philosophy, um, to answer your question, Jacob, is comes from Audrey Lord, who in the transformational language um, a transformation of silence into language and action says, I've come to believe over and over again that what's most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, that the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. And there is something about the disrupted silences, her deliberate pursuit of disrupting silence that felt like food for me. It felt like freedom, really. And one of the things that her her daughter asks her or that she writes that her daughter asks her in that same essay, she her, um, she says, how do I talk about silence like this or, or what have you? And her daughter says, tell them you're not your whole self when you're silent. Right. And that, that there's something different in my mind about secrecy, which is, is sort of a, a bit inherent in silence, right? But there's something different about secrecy than there is about privacy, right? And because privacy honors a thing, it, it considers it um, special, um, treasured even, right? Whereas secrecy, on the other hand, um, what secrecy does is adds, oftentimes adds shame to a thing. There's nothing quite like having a secret, right? And because we are oftentimes troubled by what someone may think about this secret, right? But when you are um, private about a thing, it shows a particular thoughtfulness, right? And and this is not like to say that that's always true, but generally speaking, when you're private about a thing, you're honoring a thing. And what I wanted us to be able to do in the class is to take what Audre Lorde talks about transforming those silences, which I oftentimes read as secrets about who we are and what we do and how we move and all of those kind of who we love and what we believe and um, who we hold hands with, who we are, how we identify those things that we might attach to secrets, right? Um, which is to say we might attach certain shames to and then give voice to those silences so that we're not held captive by our secrets, but we can still honor the privacy in those budding kinds of relationships that are um, products of them, if all of that makes sense. Drops mic. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the literature part come about? I know we focused a lot on like the film and the TV shows, but like how did you like incorporate the literature like you know into the film? So why don't we take a break and we'll come back and answer that question about the, the film, you know, the literature I mean. Welcome back to Real Talk. Another family member has joined us. So introduce yourself. Hi, I'm from episode number four. I'm Lexi number two. Okay. It's nice to be back. Ooh, welcome she to remember episode number. She said, episode I, I, I am like, we'll keep moving that it's episode number four that I was. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really know. I am pretty sure. All right, well, just going to like um, ask the question again. So how did um, the literature part of the Black Women Literature class come about? So, well, why don't we have Ty to tell, them what, tell the audience what literature we read, and I'll tell you why we read those things. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so just as um, your episodes each week are topically organized. Uh, we organize literature according to topic. 
So um, this semester we read um, James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk um, to discuss black criminality, um, how the black body, the black male body is criminalized and sort of that inescapable nature. Um, also like the beautiful prose um, and the stream of consciousness that occurs with the character Tish. Absolutely. Um, and Baldwin's through Tish, um, his interrogation of love and masks and things like that. Um, then we had Lorraine Hansberry's uh, Raising the Sun. Um, we classic. use that to a classic. Also, side note, um, Amadi Perry's Looking for Lorraine is, is the best biography I have read. I don't mean to cut you off. Beautiful. But like, it's so beautifully written. It's a 2018, you know, just came out of, I don't think it's been too much yet. It might be two months, but it's Looking for Lorraine. I'm not saying I'm a nerd and read the whole thing already, but I'm a nerd and I've read it already. It is so yeah. good. It is so good. Like, <laughs> Oh, it makes you have a crush on Lorraine Hansberry, which is not hard to do, but like still. Right. So we'll just put together a reading list for you guys, because I think this is just going to happen all the way through. A quick reading list would be so dope. Mm -hmm. Like holiday buys. Absolutely. Like our gift to you. Also on spot. be kind of dope too like some of the songs we might think about when we think about a class like this right and um since dj loves playlists um, i'm sure we can come up with a, a pretty fire kind of playlist um, i also want to put you on the black christmas playlist on apple oh i already i'm on it okay i'm just saying there ain't no chimneys in the project it's a great song y'all it is a great song it's even better because i remember um this digression is really problematic i, I remember saying because i grew up in the, in the projects or whatever so I remember saying, but so like how is Santa coming? Like, you know, <laughs> but anyway, so I digress. Go ahead. No, okay. We don't need to digress from that. That's a real question, you guys. Like for those of us who lived in the hood, how would Santa have come down the chimney? Because like, he's supposed to be a fat man, but like the chimney is like, and also, Wait, what chimney? you know, what and also, what, exactly. so more to the point, that, that would be a great paper title, by no the way, money. what chimney, because that could be Ooh, talk of class status and, and all of these kind of things, certain assumptions we make about the kinds of homes that Santa is supposed to come to. That is the nerd in me talking, right? Like, because it, it makes it makes it him out of access for other folks, yeah. right? Like, um, which means that by extension, children's imaginations are reeled in in a particular way, right? But anyway, reeled in by reality. But anyway, I digress again. Um, but yeah, so that's a real, that's an that's interesting, interesting question to me. Question. Like, what you mean? And also, where I'm from, like, people don't just roll up at your house without... And you get food, we leaving you stuff like we can't afford that. What? My mama told me I am buying all the presents, so <laughs> So I will say that the way I learned that the way I learned a family member told uh, my sister um when we were younger. She might hate me for saying this, but anyway, my family member told my sister um um so you know I ain't no Santa Claus, right? Like, I mean, I'm buying this. And I was like... <laughs> and little old me in the background was like, wait, what? And so that same Christmas, my cousin woke us up and was like, y'all don't really think Santa Claus real, do you? And I was like, what? And, and, um, and so he took us downstairs. He was like, they're putting the stuff together right now. And so he took oh, us all downstairs. So, you know, listener discretion is advised. If you in the car, yeah, after your baby boo. <laughs> trigger warning. Santa is not really. <laughs> so it was really funny uh, when whoever it was was on Fox News or something talking about how Santa is definitely white and how whatever. And I was like, 
You know he's make believe, right? Like, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's legit, not real. But anyway, okay, so go back to we're on a raisin. <laughs> it's okay. All right, so I mean, it ties back together because we use um, raisin to talk about black poverty. Oh, um, oh come on! Oh, you know, like I see you. I got you. <laughs> um, I'll wrap it up. Put a bow on it. Um, and then we also read August Wilson's Fences um, to interrogate black fatherhood, um, which you guys got into some really in-depth and detailed conversations. I also had, like, trouble reckoning with um, the characters and fences, and we just... We'll save that. Yeah. We'll save that for later. That was good, Um, though. That was a good section. That was a really, really good section. That's probably one of my favorite sections in the class um, because it was so problematic. And that, we watched Uncle Phil, and we watched Lil Cry, and and they were were hella emotional. You remember? People was like, like, Lexi, one of the Lexis was like, like legit in tears, but she announced it beforehand. I'm going to cry, just so you know. (laughs) She was like, why did you do this? Why did you do this to us? I've watched this several times. Like, so then you've cried several times, or is this, yeah. Right. Um, And then... Outside of that, so those were the three core kind of novels and plays um, that we read. We also read uh, excerpts from KSA Layman's um, How to Slowly Kill Yourselves and Others in America. So we read um, The Worst of White Folks. We read... Which that produced a really fruitful conversation, it, yes, too. Yes, it really did. And I think um, one of our students, so Mattia, mm-hmm. um, she grounded her paper in... Yeah, she did a hell of a job um, talking about it in class. I remember you guys talking about... Um, how we measure the dis- uh, the distance between the worst of white folks and white folks, right? Mm-hmm. And that became sort of a refrain throughout the course. And people would often ground their criticism in when they say, when I say such and such, I mean the worst of white folks, right? right? And and which is sort of us coming back, continuing to come back to Kiese, you know, his work about, um, you know, this being a way of life. They just, they, he just understood that folks meant when his, when his parents said, said something to him like, um, you guys recall the essay, he said, they said something to him like, don't you, don't you know white folks don't care if they, if you die or something like yeah. that, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, he understood that that, that meant um, the worst of white folks, which I thought was pretty interesting thing to lay at the feet of like the lived experiences of black um, kids in America. Right. And we had, um, we also had letters from Uncle Jimmy, so we will never know letters to mm-hmm. Uncle Jimmy. Um, <laughs> so our muttered expressions yeah. um, that was a heavy piece yeah. um, and then we had uh, his final one so I am a big black man who will never own a gun because I know I would use it um, and I believe that appears in heavy so his new book uh, but I'm not sure I don't think sure. so I think um, oh it might I do know it's available online maybe on medium mm-hmm. or something um, but he he had come to the area and done, you know, uh, an early version uh, of that essay, which I thought was pretty yes. brilliant, right? It, that, but it talks about how, you know, there's this discourse about guns in the classroom and all of this kind of stuff and how he could not own a gun or he could not own a gun because the world that we live in would force him to use that gun, right? Mm-hmm. And being and, and putting that gun in conversation with his black body, which is all, already rendered threatening, right? It was right. part of our black criminality episode as well. Yeah. Um, because it was during that section, so we thought it was important to go deep on that essay in our podcast. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so y'all should check out that episode, too, because they did a good job talking about um, Casey Lemon's work in, in that episode. I thought it was just... Um, so to answer your question about how I chose the literature, um, it was a sort of amalgam of... Um, 
almost of wanting to forget and needing to remember, right? There, there are certain things about uh, the lived experience that I um, live in the interstices between wanting to forget and needing to remember. And there are folk that I think we should just automatically remember, folk like Lorraine Hansberry, not just um, not just a raisin in the sun, Lorraine Hansberry, right? But like the political radical um, who is Lorraine Hansberry, right? And her connection to James Baldwin and thinking of, of all these black luminaries who are um, connected to each other, not just through adverse experiences, not just through their, the blackness of their bodies, right? But but they are connected in, um, in their writing, which I think is just so beautiful, right? There's something about, this is the nerd in me talking again, right? But um, there's something about how beautiful it is to see the, the folk we read in the anthologies, white or black, right? Um, or other, you know, or any other um, ethnic or racial group, right? That there's something special to me about seeing how these folk are connected. I think it was Toni Morrison said, who, who talked about... Um, wanting to write the when she was in publishing or something that she needed to write the book that she didn't see mm-hmm. um and i think that's what some of these folk have done and then uh, imani perry later on in, in her um work on lorraine hansberry talks about uh, lorraine hansberry's relationship with folk like james baldwin mm-hmm. and um Nina Simone, I believe. And one of the things she says about the relationship between Nina Simone and Lorraine Hansberry is that, you know, they did things that she, she says Nina Simone called it something like things that girls did, like talk about the revolution and talk about, and, and in that way they re-script what it is to be a woman or what it is to be a girl, right? Like that they're talking about revolutionary type things and not even including, you know, at a moment where they are supposed to automatically include their partners or their male counterparts or whatever, they don't even do that, right? Like that, that is just organic to who they are. But her relationship with Baldwin was something special. And um, I knew that I wanted both of them on the syllabus at the same time, um, because even though they're talking about different things, they're, they're both talking about the Black lived experience. One of the reasons I want August Wilson on there, because I think he's one of the best Black playwrights of all time, in my opinion. Um, in fact, I'm hoping to teach a class um, in the coming year, maybe on um, black playwrights um, and include quite a bit of the work of um, of August Wilson because he's just the truth, right? Um, but the relationship that he gives, the parenting relationship that he gives us in Fences, I think spawned spawn some of our um, deepest conversations in the class, but it also does something else. It makes you think about your relationships with your parents, right? Whether they're good or bad, right? Like we start to think about what we're missing when we read folk like, you know, um, James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry and um, August Wilson. And what Kiese uh, Lehman gives us later on is something in this very contemporary moment to grapple with, right? Like, because we know that we live in a moment where Black bodies are are um, expendable, to a degree, right? Like that where popular culture sees certain black bodies as expendable, right? And I wanted to create a classroom where we interrogate the why of that, right? Um, And then when we leave here, are we the same people? I wanted literature on the syllabus that that hopefully would make us different people, which is to say better people, right? Like, are we the same people? And so I guess that's something I could ask you guys, whether or not you're the same person you were when you came into the class. No worries, there's no grade on this part. But, <laughs> but like, are you, do you see yourself asking different questions or do you see yourself being, or um, troubled by some of the things we talked about? And, you know, things like that, you know? That's not rhetorical, by the way. Um, I mean, I definitely see Martin in a completely different life than I did now. <laughs> than I did then. I used to like love Martin, but now I'm just like, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know if I want to deal with with him when I'm watching it. 
I do. I mean, I like the show. It, it's funny or whatever. But whenever we bring things into academia, we have to ask tougher questions. And yeah. that's, mm-hmm. you know, the way of things. I feel like there should have been an assignment. Like, you had certain questions and we answered them and then give us those same questions at the end. And, like, how do we answer them now? Because I feel like I look at the news and even pop culture things with a different eye or a more open eye. And also, I think I treat people that I don't know a lot more nicer than I normally would treat people. I'm like, I, I normally don't like people when I first meet them. <laughs> and so, and so, but like when you're going out into the world, especially like for a person like me, like I want to go to New York, I can't be so judgmental, I guess. And on like first meeting someone, I have to be open and caring and like treat them again, like as like another human, like who has a different story than I do. And understanding and learning their story and I think I just become more open as a person because of this class I think for me um you know I've mentioned this on my other episodes I'm half Mexican but you know I'm I'm light-skinned you know so I'm I'm like yeah uh so uh you know I'm I'm a I'm a white guy at a predominantly white college and um most of my classes you know are made up of mostly white people And being in like this space in this classroom has like been a first for me. Um, I haven't like interacted with, you know, black people in a group where we're just focused on like black issues and everything. So that has been, you know, it's at times been like uncomfortable because it's a new space for me, but I've really grown through that. So that's one of the ways I've developed in this class. I'm so sorry, man. You're good. No, I'm done. Um, but I guess for me, or just one, there are lots of things, but it goes back to our, our ethic for this podcast and for this class of humanity first. But um, really being in this class has taught me not to make the minor things major as far as Jayla was talking about, uh, just like differences kind of. And the same goes for me when I meet people or when I interact with people or when I'm listening to like how people process life. Um, I don't focus so much on the things anymore that separate us or make us different or what the reasons are for why we think differently. But I really focus in on the things that um, are similar. And and, uh, Dr. Charles said something earlier about how when something is brought up, she kind of assesses herself first and asks, um, you know, maybe like why she's thinking or feeling what she's feeling first. And I find myself doing that more so being like a more of a self-evaluator than um you know making the other person prove why um, that makes any sense y'all i could be giving you a lot of credit but i've become more bold because of this stuff. absolutely come on um, I'm here for it. like when people be saying some wild stuff i'll be looking at it and i'll be like mm, actually um, <laughs> and just and like i think as a black woman in this class it just helped me appreciate myself more and actually like be a black woman in very white spaces and just like and I've had a couple conversations with my friends about this class in the world and I think those conversations we have outside the class and the ones we have inside the class maybe be like y'all don't got nothing on me like I'm about to I'm about to read y'all and do the work and like just be who I am because we're going to be in these like uncomfortable places all the time and even like you said like you're in this uh area where sometimes you're uncomfortable I'm sometimes very uncomfortable in a class about my people mm-hmm. because I was like mm, Cosby like I mean I don't know I really like his show but we had to talk about 
Yeah. Like the uncomfortableness of someone who has mm-hmm. just made a significant mark on black culture. And so I but this class has definitely made me bold and not and real quick to correct somebody. Yeah, I think I think too, um, one of the things, one of my favorite moments in class, um, I don't know if all y'all were there, y'all got real thin at the end of the semester. <laughs> uh, um there was a moment in class where we were talking I don't even know how we got on the subject of touching black women's hair and that kind of thing. Oh, you guys oh, remember that? Um, that might have been the week before the break or something, but um, we, and all of a sudden the black women in class and there there may have been six or something, yeah. but the black women in class all of a sudden start singing Solange's "Don't Touch My Hair" in <laughs> <laughs> unison without talking to each other, without looking at each other, just and it was so anthem. So shout out to Solange, okay? Mm-hmm. Like it we became an anthem. The table. And, absolutely, oh, and but but even beyond that, the white women in class let that moment happen right and i say that not to say that they cannot allow it to happen but to say that we oftentimes live in a space where people feel left out if their identity is not first and foremost right um and in this decidedly black space though tons of white bodies this decidedly black cultural space that particular moment happened and breathed and we lived we got our entire lives it was this magical black moment and then we went on about our magical black business right and i think that that was kind of dope it speaks to the kind of classroom that we created the space the room we created for each other to simply be to exist right and to feel comfort in that existing so those moments don't necessarily get translated all the time on the podcast but it was a pretty dope moment i gotta say well kind of going off that question is like how did you want the atmosphere for the classroom to go like is the classroom you have now what you envisioned or what yeah I think it is I think um oh well, I guess we should tell them how our classes run oh yeah yeah go ahead, go ahead so basically we have our assignments you know the tv shows the readings we do that hopefully we do that you know the night before <laughs> days before the actual class but you know I definitely cram two episodes in between an hour break before the class sometimes because you know I know I, some of my colleagues tell me they see y'all watching they would say to me hey are y'all watching such and such episode today and I'm like yeah and they're like oh yeah I saw some people in the library just now watching it and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> and so we watch these things to be ready to discuss like in class the next day and of course you know we heard earlier like are we always prepared no but like it's just I would bit, say most of the time but though. most of the time we are prepared and it's just an open discussion with prompted questions um to go along with like so how did these episodes relate to the topic and that's kind of how I see the class being right? just like a big open discussion yeah um sorry um I think so we got a question from one of our colleagues in the group me and I think it fits well into this section so if I'm in yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. all right so this is from um Kevin you know we've okay. Kevin's been on a couple episodes and when he's not on the episodes we'll lots of times reference what he says in class um Kevin's dope and Kevin's he asked he is dope yeah. <laughs> uh Okay, so this one's for Dr. Charles, and he asks, uh, why was the class specifically on sitcoms as opposed to other form, other forms of genres? I guess it just means other genres. Yeah. Um, was there something that sitcoms did better or worse than other shows or films, and how did the use of sitcoms influence how the class was taught or vice versa? Yeah. So um, you can always count on Kevin to give you a head-banging question. Mm-hmm. I, so the question about why it was focused on sitcoms as opposed to other genres um, is because of, because of that, right? That it's a situation comedy, right? That we know something is going to happen, but it will be framed in a comedic way. And I find that it's often easier to talk about the, the terrifying I'm, I'm, reality. Yes. Jordan just realized what sitcom meant. It's oh. a situation comedy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
like her face, like you just, you just like gave her the entire like this is, truth of the world. This, I wish I <laughs> this is way worse than that because like. So sitcoms what? and sitcoms. Keep going. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but what? Um, so for our listening audience, situation comedy. Um, yeah, it's okay, Jordan. We're good. We're here. Um, no, yeah. So that's the thing, right? That it would that there's some situation that's going to happen and it will be handled in a somewhat comedic kind of way. Right. And I think, um, for me, I needed, I know that it's easier to engage the tough topic, um, alongside, um, some sort of comedic relief. Um, not that the situation itself, uh, uh, is the situation is comedy itself, right? But that, but that, um, if the writers are skillful, they can help me to laugh off. For example, there are certain things in you guys recall the Mommy Dearest episode of, of a different world where, um, or Mammy Dearest or something mm-hmm. like that, I think it's called, and um, where they're talking about the Mammy figure. So I know that 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 episode was very disrupting to the cast itself, right? The cast was very hurt by the episode, the writing of it. They, um, they had tension with each other about it, the darker skin characters and the fairer skin characters and what this meant to the history of black women and all of this kind of thing. Right. But then there were various moments in the episode that gave us a little relief. And that's why I needed it to be a situation comedy. Also that, um, it is easier for me to make sure that we leave at, at minimum on a responsibly high note, right? Because I don't want you to leave and think there's no hope in the world, right? And I have a precarious relationship with the term hope, right? It's, it's I find hope itself when you tell black people to continue to hope for a thing, I find that exhausting, right? Because it's hoping for a thing, an eventuality, something you're telling them that is eventual without any evidence that that thing is taking place, right? So it can be a little exhausting, but when you're teaching such heady and, um, you know, really dense kind of topics, I think you need the relief. I think you need um, the the um, blooper reel, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, because that's what the comedy does. If you'll remember from the... Um, there's something we watched for class about good times. That was the Ichu Hollywood story. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and they talked about why they gave Michael's character, who is the activist of the show, mm-hmm. um, what, who they call the militant midget. Um, he, why they gave him all of the denser kind of um, political material, right? Where he's asking questions like who did kill Megar Evers? Why aren't y'all looking for who killed him? That kind of thing. The reason they gave it to him is because he's the smallest one on the show and, mm-hmm. and the audience could accept it better. That's the same reason I chose the sitcom. People can take the the toughness of it better, the toughness of the racial uh, tension and all those kind of things better if they know that it's not, that it's going to be um, some comedy in and of itself. So there's an episode, for instance, of Fresh Prince where Carlton buys a gun or something. Mm-hmm. They get robbed or something and Carlton buys a gun. Um, and there's a moment where Carlton has this gun in the hospital room and this is before Will is crying and saying, you owe me, you owe me. I mean, I could get an Oscar if I really did the whole scene. Like, <laughs> well, they don't get television shows Oscars. Anyway, and I mean, an Emmy or Golden Globe, you know. Spoken uh, like a true uh, professional. Um, but there's this moment where Will looks at the camera. He almost breaks the fourth wall a little bit where he's looking around like, Yo, I was, he was like, I was going to eat that, man. So Carlton had flipped the table over in his anger. Um, and it was an explosive moment. It was a very explosive moment, right? And and we're supposed to uh, remain in that moment. But then, like, Will takes a step back and he's, like, looking around like, 
bro, did you have to flip my food over? Like I was going to eat that. And that comedic break, that moment of break gives us respite from the tension that is about, that continues to unfold. And that's why I chose the sitcom. I was like, imagine if this show was about like, this class was about roots and we just, every Ooh. week just. No, thanks. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do the class if it was about roots. I ain't First of all, yeah, I was like, it like, in a sense, like, Okay, kind of going off what you just, um, Rihanna just said, um, you know, if we did like talking about the show Roots, we probably like had everybody drop the class. Yeah. So it's kind of like, how did we, or how did you think like a black film lit title for a class would be successful in like a class about Roots or something like that? Like, Well, so that I don't think is, or do you think you would have like the, people wanting to sign it? Well, let's be clear. I'm me. So, like, I mean... <laughs> My name's on it. I'm kidding. I am so kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not serious. Like, what? But, like, hello. <laughs> um, so, I knew some folk would take the class um, because they've had me before and they express interest in certain classes, right? So, like, DJ oftentimes tells people I'm his favorite teacher um, that he's had in college or whatever, which I don't take that lightly either, right? When, when when a student tells me that and they have gone through their entire major and they're about to graduate, shout out to the graduating seniors, right? Like when they're about to graduate and then they tell you of all the classes I've ever had, this class changed me most or moved me most or made me my best self. That's something, that's not something I take lightly, nor is it something that I strive for, right? Because um, that would be an impossible task to reach every, every semester. But um, I wouldn't choose a class like on something like, um, something like Roots, because um, it is, if I'm honest, exhausting. Um, It is just exhausting to do that kind of um, race work. It's exhausting doing the black sitcom kind of race work every, because I do it in class every day. I mean, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday or whatever, right? but I live it every day, right? So there is very little respite from it, right? Um, But to do a class on something that um, sees, that um, exposes the violence against black bodies, which is not something I think we necessarily need to feed on because quite frankly, we live in an an America that continually consumes black death daily, right? And so I don't want to necessarily do that in class every single day. Does it deserve its room? Does it deserve space? Of course it does, right? And we give that, we give, room for it in class when we study Baldwin's um, Bill Street and we talk about this um, this guy who's wrongly accused of raping this woman at the same moment that we're in this Me Too, Me Too moment and at the same moment um, in the Black Lives Matter moment, right? We are still continually consuming, but I want our consumption to be, um, for us to be ever mindful that we are not consuming Black death, but we are um, consuming in an effort to destroy systems of oppression, right? And so if we're not doing that, but we're always taking apart Black death, it would be for me the equivalent of leaving uh, a Trayvon Martin dead in the street for hours or leaving someone else, you know, dead uncovered in the street for hours for the spectacle of it all. And I am not interested in Black spectacle, right? I am interested in Black lived experiences and I don't want to play to the spectacle of that, right? That's not to say that I won't teach the tough stuff, but I don't want, I don't have the mental capacity to, to, um, always have that at the forefront, right? It would be, um, the scenes we'd have to go through, um, the the damage to not just to black bodies, the the body them the body itself, right, but to um, 
folks and their posterity, right? Like their children having to continually consume that. And um, I wouldn't be healthy enough um, to do that. I wouldn't, I mean, respect to the people who can, I cannot. That person I've never seen all of roots. I just could not. No. I've seen all of it. I know all pretty much all the words. I mean, um, I think there's a time and a place mm-hmm. for it. I, I, and maybe at some point in my career could do something like that, but I am more interested in getting people um, a seat at the table as it were. Right. And I think it's James Foreman who says, if we can't have a seat at the table, let's knock the fucking legs off. And I wholeheartedly believe in knocking the legs off the table. Let's build a new table in this bitch. You know what I'm saying? Like let's start all the way over if we have to. And, um, and like, may we go the way of James Foreman who said, knock the legs off if we can't sit at the table. Right. And it's, and it's not about me and black folk like me. It's not about um, Ayana and DJ and Bree and Matteo and Ty asking for permission to sit at your table, right? Like, like we're not doing that. Like, we're not asking for permission to sit at your table. We're either um, bringing or building our own table, which is quite frankly how black folk have done for centuries, right? Um, or you're either gonna, at some point, you're gonna wanna sit at our table. If hip hop culture teaches us nothing else, right? Like you're gonna wanna sit at our mm-hmm. table. But what I was interested in in this class is is um, constructing a new sort of table, a table, a family table where conversations can happen and we can still consume the meat for that day. All right, so one more question before we get to on second thought, you know, the lighter topics. Um, <laughs> what was the, did you feel that it was important to have this class at a PWI? So one of the things you said that your dad said is like, why isn't this class being taught at an HBCU? Um, I'm a two-time HBCU graduate, so let me just say that Bennett Bells do it well. Um, shout out to Bennett College, Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, and also Aggie Pride, <laughs> uh, North Carolina A&T State University. Um, so I'm a two-time HBCU graduate, right? Um, these are things that I didn't necessarily have to be taught at an HBCU because it is the black lived experience of the HBCU that, that, that at a H at an HBCU, you don't have to teach black people that black folks are not a monolith. Why? Because when I walk across campus, I see a wide array of black folk and black experiences, right? Like uh, black class statuses and, um, you know, black different, different majors, whether they are engineering engineers or, or theater majors or whatever. And those people still being in conversation with each other because there's a commonality of experience despite their disparate existences. Right. And so that's not something that they, that I, they had to teach me at an HBCU. In fact, watching a different world is one of the reasons that I decided to go to an HBCU, but but it was something that they didn't necessarily have to explain to me, right? So Debbie Allen talks about how on a different world, after that first season, when when Cosby brings her on, she talks about how like, she asked the tough questions like, well, where's the chocolate sister? Like, where's the dark skinned sister who, where is um, D9, uh, you know, Divine Nine Greek culture, which is rampant at HBCU campuses, right? Like, where is all those things that signify? She even asked down right down to the hot sauce on the table, right? Like, why is there a place that black folk are eating where these condiments aren't available, right? That's black cultural experiences that didn't necessarily need to be taught, Um and I, I don't say it's not necessary, but I'm saying that that come along with being on an HBCU campus. The reason I wanted to bring it to a PWI uh, is two reasons. One, 
um, that we don't think very much about. We think of sitcoms as something to pass the time. Oh, this is cool to do and whatever. But I grew up in an area of TGIF uh, where people would sit home on Friday nights just to watch Family Matters and all of those shows that came on on Friday nights, right? Um, I grew up in a moment where this was family time, right? That on, And Brie talks about this in her episode that on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, the coffee show would come on and people would sit down and watch it. My grandmother and I watched Good Times like weekly. And it, and it took me until... Um, I was early adulthood before my brother told me that they were reruns when I was watching them, right? Like, I didn't know that. And so I wanted to bring those, uh, quote, sitting in Black experiences into the classroom space so that it can, so that we can talk about the things that we know about each other. Like, so for instance, we th- there's a lot we think we don't know, but like everyone knows what it's like to have an argument with a sibling. Everyone knows what it's like to have, to love your um, father or, you know, to love your father so big and he have a problem with you or him not believe you when you say something, you know, this happened and he doesn't believe you and all of that kind of, everyone knows those experiences. Why not see it through a black lens so that we can, you know, um, see that, that humanity of it all. All righty then. Well, we'll be right back. Um, on second thought. Hey guys, it's your girl Jay Kills, and we're in on second thought. So I know we just got done talking about some really tough stuff, but I have another tough question for Dr. Charles, and that is why did after all of the Cosby fiasco we continue to talk about him and what is so important and uh you know fundamental about so actually why don't I throw this question at Ty and then I'll oh. tell you why on the on my end, I chose to, to keep Cosby on the syllabus. Okay, so I mean, I I kind of answered this because I was first featured on the Cosby episode, um, but you're asking why we chose to keep him on the syllabus. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think to, to deprive the students in the class of the experience would have been irresponsible on our part. Um, being that the Cosby show was one of the most foundational shows for America, black America, um, black television and the sitcom and the various tropes that we see. Not to say like that Cosby wasn't building upon tropes that originated with shows like Good Times, um, shows like Help me out. Uh, 227, 227 or, um, or whatever. What's happening. What's happening. Things like that. Um, but I think to have deprived the class of the Cosby show we wouldn't have delved into conversations. We wouldn't have had that um, amount of comfort in that we all know the Cosby show. We all have had a touchstone in the Cosby show. We recognize it. Um, and it was probably the perfect uh, starting place. At least that's that's what I think. So one of the reasons I decided to keep it on the syllabus, so keep in mind, I created this syllabus in advance of the verdict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not in advance of the accusations. And so one of the things I had to war with is um, the politics of memory, how we remember folk, how we um, revise um, history. And much of the problems I think with American history in general is that people take a revisionist approach, hence Thanksgiving, right? Like, um, shout out to all the indigenous people who endure. Um, but what I didn't want to do is, um, I didn't think it was my job to revise the historiography of the black American sitcom. Right. And Cosby is in a lot of ways foundational to that. And by, um, it's the Cosby show, but by extension, 
um, Cosby himself. I would have done you a disservice to not include it, but I would have done you a greater disservice to include it without problematizing uh, Cosby the man, right? Um, but but more than that, um, how extended his reach is, right? Because there are shows that are in his direct lineage, uh, in the direct lineage of the Cosby show, um, shows like A Different World, right? But then there are shows that are in sort of an invisible lineage of the Cosby show that carry on this patriarchal kind of um, um, flawed patriarchal character, shows like um, Fresh Prince, shows like Blackish, right? That um, are shows like Moesha that that do uh, a representational work of Black fatherhood and things like that that are in that invisible lineage. And so to write that out would be also to disrupt their particular histories, too. Um, and I think about the way in which we remember um, things throughout history. There, uh, being in the South, right, there's a, always a conversation about um, the Confederate flag, for instance, or about um, Confederate monuments and things like that, that, that folk want to either get rid of it altogether, take them all, take all the statues down and do all of those kinds of things. Um, or they want to um, build monuments to people who have changed history for the better. And, um, and I'm of the mindset that like, you know, sure, tear them all down, right? Or put them in a place where they can be remembered the way in which they should be remembered, right? And so that is to say a part of the history, but um, not a history that we are, necessarily honoring and lifting up. We're not saying this is the best way to have been, right? And so the way that we, for instance, change Thanksgiving to make it something like um, this beautiful dinner, when in fact there are people in America whose land we occupy, who we don't, who we conveniently forget about, um, is troubling to someone like me who is always concerned with humanity. So to and I know that's a long roundabout way of saying I left Cosby on the syllabus because I think revisionist history is dangerous history. Right. But I think it has its place. And so. And so obviously I thought about it and obviously we created a kind of classroom where we could say out loud what we're uncomfortable with and we can say out loud you know, Cosby ain't shit for raping all these women, right? And we probably should. In fact, if you leave the classroom and you think, um, you know, he's this great man and we he could do no wrong, then then I did I failed you in a lot of ways, right? Um, but I think if we look at people like Lisa Bonet and and all of these um, Tempest Bledsoe and, and even Daryl Bell and um, you know all of the folk from a different world and stuff like that, we look at these folk who have put their creative talents into a work um, that a man could come along and destroy with his own behaviors and things like that. Um, then we write them out too, the Malcolm Jamal Warners and folks like that. Like where does that part? And, and I do have a, quite a few friends who decided to no longer watch the Cosby show. It is a position that I respect. I can, I can respect that. Um, but someone who, someone like me, who has chosen to continue to interrogate the Cosby show, um, I own, I own that, that I continue to leave it on the syllabus more, more than that. Like, could y'all imagine an episode, a, 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 a show, or I'm sorry, a, a class about the black sitcom that doesn't engage the Cosby show. Like that episode of when, when Vanessa goes to meet the wretched is <laughs> to have big fun, to have <laughs> big fun. Like, <laughs> listen, if you didn't get that episode, it's not a sitcom class. Like that is black culture classic. I right feel there. like without the Cosby show, like just taking him out of it, a class without Claire Huxtable, 
like the one of the best TV moms ever. Not black, like best, best TV, TV mom. Absolutely. And we didn't have her presence to see her mother teaching and like her working woman and being a mom at the same time, like attitude. And I will feel like you disservice me. And, and also, and also, not just. Claire Huxley, but Felicia Rashad, whose political position, uh, to be clear, I don't look at actors for my uh, politics anyway, and my politics are flawed just like anyone else, any other human being. But in my mind, like, I want to be a mix of, like, Claire Huxtable, right, and Michelle Obama, like, they are, you know, and you can splash some Debbie Allen in in there, too, right? Like, I mean, so, and I look at someone like... um, Claire Huxtable and what she means for other women, black women in particular, right? That she um, has rescripted what we think about black motherhood and all of these kinds of things, right? That she's one of the best TV moms out there. And to not have her, I think about even shows like Roseanne, you know, like Roseanne was problematic. First of all, to be clear, she was problematic when I was a kid. I know y'all probably didn't watch her. She was problematic when I was a kid. I did watch the show, right? I watched the reboot and I thought to myself, this is interesting, right? Like that, uh, on the show, um, you know, she supports the current administration and all that kind of stuff. And um, and her sister supports um, Hillary Clinton and they have they clash about it. And she has on that show, she had a grandson or I think she had a grandson who um, did a lot of sort of gender bending kind of work with his clothes and stuff like that. And she defended him and all of that kind of stuff. And it brought into conversation questions about identity. And then Roseanne goes off and says some problematic shit on Twitter or whatever um, about people who look like me. And I'm like, Wait a second, like there's a black girl in the show too. Right, there's a black girl in the show, which I find which I find all of that interesting, right? But what the black woman executive decides to do is to cancel the whole show because, you know, black women are boss, right? So she cancels the whole show and revamps it and now it's called the Connors and I have no idea what's happening on the show because I don't watch it, but I'm saying and I only watched one episode when it returned. But what it shows me is that even in this, um, there, there's a way to do this responsible work, this socially responsible work of presenting meaningful sitcoms, but also, and not do it at the expense of humanity itself, right? And so to all of the uh, survivors of sexual assault, I hope that I haven't done anyone any harm in keeping Cosby on the syllabus. Um, because what I've done is in keeping him there, I haven't kept him the man. I kept I kept his character and the shows he produced. But I also deeply problematized those shows. I mean, you know, problematized him the man. And because to do one without the other, I think would be a great disservice. Do you um, think that it makes a difference that we watch them or that the way we were provided to watch them was on a medium that doesn't financially support Cosby? Absolutely. I think for me, so the question is like, do I think that it matters um, that that the way we the way we watch them mm-hmm. was on a on a, uh, through a medium that that doesn't um, support financially support um, Cosby. I would not have kept Cos- um, the Cosby Show on the syllabus if it required you to buy the show. Right. I would not have done that. Um, in fact, none of the sh- well. No, that's not true because you know there there are one or two shows that I might have oh, been yeah. like you need to buy that one. Um, <laughs> but like. I already own the entire box series, right? Am I about to go set fire to that box series? Absolutely not. Like, I'm not doing that, right? But if it meant that you guys had to go out and buy it, I would not have included it on the... One, because that financially supports a bona fide rapist, right? So, like, my politic wouldn't allow that, right? And so, how whatever medium you watched, you decided to watch it on, the medium I was going to provide was going to be hella free, 
you know, not because you're college students, because quite frankly, college students sign up to pay for books and things like that, you know, materials. Right. But it was going to be free because my politics says I can't make you pay to watch a rapist, you know, and, and earn him money in the process. Cause I felt like in that way I might be funding his, you know, you know, being able to, not that he needs any more help from me, but you know what I'm saying? Excellent question. Absolutely free. Um, but excellent question. Oh, yes. <clears throat> I had the question of what is a way in which you think we can begin to deconstruct the norm that women should be taught how to reject and begin the change to a norm that men should be taught how to handle rejection? So we talked a little bit about this in class, right? Like how women are taught, women are often taught how to reject a man or how to reject, you, you, remember, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like we talked a little bit about how women are often taught how to reject someone, keep their, excuse me, their humanity, um, or make sure you're careful with their ego and all of that kind of bullshit, right? Like that we're taught that this is how you reject, not just a man, but, but how you reject in general. But in particular, we're taught that when it comes to our confrontations with a toxic version of masculinity, right? Right. Um, and I hope that some of the shows deconstruct that, particularly shows like Moesha, because even though she um, is boy crazy, right? There's there are a few episodes that we didn't get to in class, um, get to watch for class, where Moesha takes ownership of her adult emerging adult body and sexuality and identity and has um, relationships that her family don't necessarily like, but, you know, they um, respect that she is her own person and all of these kinds of things. Um, And shows like Girlfriends, which we didn't get, we didn't get to, which we should have, right? You got these four badass women, one who is like, one of whom is hella, like, a couple of them have like degrees and all of this kind of stuff, but like one of them is hella educated, but she's also hypersexual. And they revise the notion of darker skinned women being the hypersexualized women in, in girlfriends and things like that. So like this notion of us being taught how to reject men, um, I hope that some of the shows, however subtly, um, re, uh, help us to reimagine what, what that means. More than that, I hope that the men in the classroom, and in this way I'm, I'm speaking um, not even to um, only heterosexual identifying men, I'm saying to men in general that, uh, that they are cha- constantly challenging this, I, this um, toxic masculinity, right? Like that they're constantly asking themselves and, and their boys, like, but if she said no, or she's not, you know, she said no, it's not because she wants you to chase her more. She just ain't interested in your ass. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe if we put the onus on the men to be better human beings, right? Like, then we can move, you know, you know what I mean? And so I hope that we are um, revising that kind of norm. What do you think? Well, I think it, the question kind of speaks to the conversation that we're in now, um, if we're to consider like the ongoing Me Too movement. Um, and how the rejection of men, um, and even when your no means no, and your no still doesn't mean no to other people, uh, recognizing that in and of itself, it's at risk to the body. Um, a woman saying no, and a woman attempting to reject someone is always already going to be at risk to her own safety, her own body, her own um, sense of self. Um, and even more so for consider like socially and ideologically, um, the protection of maidenhood. Um, and all the historic connotations that come along with it, um, and slut shaming, all of the other things. So, if we're to consider um, the ways that these sitcoms help us, um, I think probably the most notable one for me is looking at the No Means No episode from a different world, 
Um, that's the one where um, Freddie um, is sexually assaulted by a yeah. baseball player. Yeah. Um, and then Dwayne Wade comes or Dwayne Wayne come in, comes in um, and helps save her. So, uh, yeah, it would, it would go along with helping the men in the classroom, um, helping to revise that narrative by challenging their male counterparts, but also recognizing that, like, a community is often necessary, as sad as it is, to help um, protect women. And uh, often the community is the thing that helps women heal um, after instances of sexual assault. I think, too, um, even if we extend that conversation, one of the convers- one of the fruitful parts of the class um, where we talk about that particular No Means No episode had some of the men questioning, like, you know, one, why does Dwayne have to come be the one to save her, as it were? And I don't think he does. I don't think he comes... I think he wants to save her in the beginning and she's headstrong and all of these things. And when he shows up to save her, as it were, um, he fumbles that. Right. Right. He fumbles it and she ends up poking dude in the eye and, and jumping out of the car. And he allows her the moment to get away. But right. But he doesn't. Right. But then she has to come back and save him, which I think is a, a powerful mm-hmm. rescripting, too. Right. But there is something that happens in the episode that I do that I also find interesting and problematic, right? But I think it's for the viewing audience and that when Freddie comes back after she's been sexually assaulted in the episode, folk are already having a conversation about this. Right. They're already, they're already um, talking to each other about what kind of trash ass dude this, this character is, right? And by extension, talking about the fact that he has assaulted her and other women, right? And while the conversation uh, albeit necessary um, to to for a sitcom culture, right? Um, it it is troubling in that she doesn't have the right to her privacy either, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw that with Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh right? When when he has a, a, a complete and utter tantrum at his job interview, okay, right? Like he has a complete and utter tantrum, but this woman is dragged out of obscurity. To help to to so that he won't get the job, right? But you said in her face basically that like, yeah, I hear you and everything, and and there are people who in the room who believed her, right. who are like, yeah, but that's not big enough for us not to hire him to create the laws that protect the people that you know what I mean. So like, um, even the sitcom gives us a, a way in which to discuss those kind of things, um, and and to ask ourselves what our role as a bystander is in this moment. So, oh, oh, you got it, DJ. Uh, I think that kind of leads into uh, one of the questions that I had about how womanhood is tackled in shows now like uh, Insecure or Blackish, in, uh, in comparison to shows like Living Single or Moesha or you know A Different World, and how like how do you see that in in uh, in comparison? I think these po- these shows are. Um, like in each other's lineages, right? Like I think what happens in Insecure, shout out to Issa Rae, um, <laughs> and Ivana Orji and all the, all the dope people on Insecure. Um, also Issa Rae, if you're listening, listen, I would love a job. That'd be great. Like, I've been watching you since Awkward Black Girl. That's all I'm saying. I had friends call me because I had just cut my hair off when Issa cut her hair off. I'm just saying. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, what Insecure does, I think, particularly for the Molly character, she, in my estimation, is quite in the lineage of, of Maxine Shaw. Um, brilliant in her own right, has an education, is smart, is beautiful, owns her body and all of these things. And we get this continual progression of women like her. Um, I think about Joan in um, Girlfriends, who these these folk, um, the difference in Girlfriends and Living Single is that Living Single um 
automatically centers the fact that these women are not partnered, right? And by the end of the show, if I remember correctly, everyone ends up partnered in some way, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily true for other shows like this, right? Like other shows like this demonstrate that um, there is something more to life than this kind of pursuit, right? One of the things that Michelle Obama talks about in her in her book, Becoming, not that I'm a nerd and have read it, I have read over half of it, it's dope. Um, one of the things that she talks about in the book is that, um, that she says that um, um, Barack Obama had oftentimes mentions that her family is quite a lot like she's a black, her family is the black version of um, Lena to Beaver or something like that. And she says, he says that with a bit of envy, but, but that he wants to rescript the idea that black folk can't come from two parent homes and all of these kind of, and where one is a homemaker because Michelle Obama's mom's a homemaker. Um, but in that same section, the thing I find interesting is that they're having a conversation about sitcoms in that section where she talks about she was actually more interested in the Mary Tyler Moore show where there was this wo- woman who was not forever in pursuit of being partnered and, and all of those kind of things who was intelligent and not that, not that women who are pursuing partnership aren't intelligent, but that they had other concerns too, right? And that's um, what Living Single gives us. You know, we have entrepreneurs on the show we have comedians we have we have all of this stuff and it in quite a lot of ways not in black america but in quite a lot of ways gets eclipsed by the show friends which is certainly born out of living single right like they friends only happens because living single has happened right and then you get you know the badassery of of folk like queen latifah who is probably one of the better of these um rapper turned actors, right? Like she is, in my opinion, a bona fide star. Um, like, you know, having amassed all these awards on very in various areas. Um, and so what these shows do is give us um, insight, I think, particularly like Insecure becomes, um, I think the 21st century version of, um, of maybe a, a, of a 20th century version of Living Single, right? Um, and even Moesha, I think that she, in the nineties, she's doing something. She's very representative of what's happening in the nineties, right? Like Brandy's Brandy is a bona fide star at this point, right? But then we forget about the fact that she was also, not only was she a a singing star or whatever, right? But like, um, I mean, I love Monica and Brandy. So like, I want to get y'all life together, but, um, not only was she a bona fide star or whatever, but we forget the fact that she was even on Thea, right? Because we don't even think about Thea, but she was on that show too, right? Like, so she was already emerging and she was already um, being scripted as a, a, a different kind of black girl, right? And and very much like a me kind of black girl. Like I um, related to her quite a bit. And so I think what Insecure does is give us the sort of grown woman version yeah. of, of who a Moesha might be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have kind of lightened up our topics. So I'm just going to open up the floor for anyone who has any more questions they want to ask or comments they want to make to you. Um, Um, No, no, don't all rush. I'm going to try to get. Okay, so it's kind of a lighter question, but. as someone who's been an English literature major for a while now, how do you see kind of the type of academia that's done in literary fields, but also intersecting with black studies and things like queer studies as different from normal like literary academia? And 
the approach? Like, how has that been important to you in your career? So my, um, that's a great question. Um, So I was an English major in undergrad. So I've been engaged with this literature for a long time. I was a literature major in grad school, um, or at least in my first grad program, my second grad program, I was in black studies. Um, And so for me, literature, um, has always been deeply connected to social justice, um, not because of my Black studies, not necessarily just because of my Black studies background, but also because, you know, I think the work of literature is, to, it, it does a work in the world, right? Like, I don't think it's, I don't think literature is um, produced in a bubble and, you know, done in any kind of isolation, right? Like, I think that oftentimes authors are anticipating various political shifts. I think that they are encouraging certain shifts. I think that they're responding to certain shifts. And so um, I've always, I've always been interested in um, occupying spaces that allow me to use the literature to advance um, social justice issues, right? That that allow room for you know the the um, conversations about social justice, right? And and I would feel you know very much out of place in a space where I couldn't do that, right? And so this is what drew me um, to Black literature. Um, There was, when I was an undergrad at Bennett College, there was a professor, shout out to Dr. Brown. She was absolutely amazing and easily the toughest professor I had in all of undergrad. I later on find out that like when she was when she was in undergrad, also had been in college, her aunt was the president of the college. Right. So she's already in this long lineage of black women who are badass black women, you know, and she walks in the classroom one day and she is reciting Mari Evans. I am a black woman, but she doesn't tell us that that's what she's doing. She just stands up there and she starts reciting. I am a black woman. And I remember sitting in that classroom at Bennett College thinking, I want to do this. Where my, where my blackness and my womanhood, much like Audre Lorde talks about how they, they are equal parts of who she is, whatever. I, I remember thinking, I want to be this person who can have a conversation where I don't have to, um, uh, one doesn't have to eclipse the other. In fact, I think Audre Lorde says, I find that I'm, um, someone find the quote for me, but it, it says, I find, I find that I'm constantly being asked to pluck out some one part of myself and present it as a meaningful whole, eclipsing or denying all other parts of self. I'm, Sure, I'm paraphrasing it, butchered that. But basically, what she's saying is that, like, there is something, you know, when we ask people to do that, we are doing them harm. And that moment at Bennett College was the moment I figured out that, like, I could be both. I could be black and I could be woman. I could be academic and I could be all of those things at the same time in the classroom space. And so that's what, and that very deeply informs my teaching. Um, did you find the quote? Yes. So um, it's, I find that I'm constantly being encouraged to pluck out some one aspect of myself and present this as a meaningful whole, eclipsing or denying the other parts of self. That was pretty close. You're, you're, you're <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you're right there. So um, in that light, a uh, question for you and Ty. Um, out of all the uh, sitcoms that we watch in, uh, in the class, what character, like, do you find embodies you the most? <laughs> or, or go even further on that, like, you know, are there different characters that, like, represent you in different phases of your life? Come on! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Y'all better... Okay. <laughs> you want to go first, or...? Uh, you can go first. Okay. So, the character that probably embodies me the most is Kim from A Different World. Like, um, <laughs> like, 
she's so intelligent and in my estimation so incredibly beautiful her skin is flawless i don't know if y'all checked that like but um but she also um in a lot of in a lot of ways looked like me i mean i didn't see very many darker skinned black women who were that so shout out to charnel brown if you're listening you know what i'm saying just know that you impacted my life um my students have you to thank um but that she was so driven um ambitious and in the early season, in season two, ambitious to a fault, right? Because when anxiety started to manifest in the second season for her, she couldn't quite get her life together enough to do as well as she wanted to do and all of this kind of stuff. But by the by series end, she was definitely like um, in med school and all of this kind of stuff, right? So she's the one I identify with the most. Not only that, but throughout the series, she also owns her sexuality. She owns her body. She knows who she wants to be with. She does have a pregnancy scare in season two, I think, um, which which brings up an interesting um, dynamic in college life when your friends end up pregnant and that kind of stuff. She doesn't end up pregnant, but she has a pregnancy scare or whatever. And it shows the multifacets of her life. Um, and I just really... Um, she re- she resonated with me. And then um, perhaps apart from her, um, Moesha, uh, she was, one, she had a black ass name and I personally appreciated that um, because my name is Julia and it's not, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I believed in pronouncing black folks' names, knowing them, knowing how to spell them, right? Like I believe in pronouncing not just black folks' names, people's names in general, right? And I like the fact that there was a whole show with this black girl with braids like I had, with this black ass name, who was a writer and loved literature like I did. And um that so I resonate those two characters resonate with um with me the most, but Kim probably more than anybody. Yes. Um, so I, I feel, or I, I know, um, that the character that resonates with me the most is going to be Freddie from, um, a different world, I at least for that. the, yeah, <laughs> for the part that I, or for the, um, for the place that I am in my life right now, um, sort of reconciling with, um, being sort of this ongoing optimist, um, and at risk to myself, um, and then someone who is very, um, ideological and also, I find that I'm, I'm seeking leadership in other people, but I am, I'm engaging with politics in the political sphere and social activism, um, in ways that benefit me, um, and in benefiting me, I feel as though I'm, I'm helping others. Um, and Cree, so, I mean, shout out to Cree Summer. Like, cause she's done, really. she's done everything. And, and she's I, also voiced she's her whole childhood, Susie. by the way. Yeah. Susie Carmichael. Um, Absolutely. Susie Carmichael. Um, she's like a lot of people, by the way. Y'all should, yeah. I mean, a lot of characters. Like, she's, y'all swear to I will say, let me add to that, that one of the things I really liked about Kim is that um, even if it took her a second to get there, like she's not as politically active as a Freddie, right? Yeah. But like there was an episode about the apartheid um, in South Africa where where they were upset that the college hadn't divested from South Africa. And I remember this season of life, right? Like where uh, apartheid was a big conversation and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and then Kim decides to give up a, a, a scholarship because folk hadn't divested from South Africa and she needed to make that stand, right? But she did that um, from an introspective 
perspective. She did not. She her solidarity with black black um, issues of social justice was her own. It was she needed the moment to grapple with it herself and decide for herself who she wanted to be in this, how she wanted to be remembered. And she said, I'll know for the rest of my life, I could have made a stand, but I didn't. Right. And that really resonated with me too. Like that, that my politics in as much as they constantly need work. And I, and I believe everyone's does, right. Like, um, that I hope I'm always considering for myself who I want to be, you know, how I want to be remembered, that kind of thing. Great. I find myself always asking the question, like, what do you stand for? Yeah. Um, which is kind of resulted in like this hella radical Instagram persona. Um, yeah, it is. Mostly because... Have y'all been on her IG? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is so like, radical. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel as though if something needs to be said, you have to say it. Um, Absolutely. Audrey Lord. Uh, Audrey Lord. Um, and I'm coming out of uh, some experiences last semester um, in graduate classrooms where I felt as though I had to defend myself and defend my blackness or um, be the speaker for all black people and I can never do that. Um, and so it's sort of reconciling, like, this is who I am. I can't let my voice go unheard because letting my voice go unheard would be a betrayal to myself, um, to these people in this classroom. No one's learning anything if you don't say anything. Absolutely. Um, and so, like, I saw myself in... I saw myself um, in pre-summer and I saw myself in Kim and I saw myself in Freddie um, from a different world because if we're to think of Kim, um, there's that sort of painful um, and magical kind of ways in which she navigates the world. Um, and Freddie, she's, she's so steadfast. Um, she's so dedicated to her mission. She also like, I considered law school for a hot minute. Me too. Mostly because I wanted to be like Freddie. Um, and I was really good. I was really good at the LSAT questions. The GRE is trash. Um, I was actually better at the LSAT questions see, than I, I was at the GRE. They just make sense. Yeah. So it's real hot in here. But um, <laughs> it's real hot in here. Like, and I'm, I'm sweating. No, so I wonder, like, like, if oh, all of us, there. like, you know, what characters are we? I don't know. What, could you assign us characters and, like, what you see off of us? Oh, just be in class. All right, you guys. So I think you're this character. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I believe in defining people. Like, like if I were to define you for it's you, like a BuzzFeed like, quiz, though. It would be a BuzzFeed quiz. Um, it could have the potential, Rihanna said, that would be problematic. Um, it could have the potential to be pretty problematic. Y'all know I, I tend to try and be a good person. Um, and so um, what I will say is that there are certain um, episodes of certain shows that remind me of people in the classroom that, that you know, that, that sort of, that tickles me quite a bit. I would love to know who I, uh, yeah. what episode oh. reminds you of me. Um, so DJ, you remind me quite a bit of the um, intro to Fresh Prince. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, because whenever you, whenever you ask a question in class, mm-hmm. um, it's very unassuming, right? And there's an episode of, of uh, Fresh Prince where Will's homeboy comes <laughs> and he's like um, interested in Hillary and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, he sees Will's book and he's and Will is like, you know, they gave me that, but I'll be reading it or whatever. He's too cool to read it or whatever. And then he sees Will's marginal note and the marginal note says intriguing duality or whatever. And we are meant to know that not only is Will like this, um, you know, kind of um, goofy 
guy or whatever, but he is also brilliant. We're meant to know from that one phrase that he is engaged with this material. And um, oftentimes when you ask something in class, it's usually a fruitful question, but because you're so jovial and you're so mm-hmm. like, well, what y'all think about this? Or you might even holler out, hell no, like that ain't what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, and people, um, but they don't see, um, They people may or may not always see how invested you are in the analysis of it all, right? And so you remind me quite a bit of, um, the intro to Fresh Prince, because in that first season, when, when Will Smith um, is learning how to be the Fresh Prince on television, he's like he's learning it all. Right. And you can see him mouthing some of the other characters lines. Right. Because he's learning that, oh, I should have just learned my stuff and not everybody else's stuff and all that kind of stuff. But he becomes the breakout. Well, I mean, he's already the breakout. You know, it's pretty much named for him. But. He is so unassuming throughout. And then you have these just flashes of brilliance where people are surprised except the people who know him well. And so mm-hmm. that's who you remind me of. Oh. You're welcome. <laughs> 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 mean Honestly, but I feel like I'm like a Freddie, like Absolutely. Uh, Whitley mix. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. I always wanted to be bougie like Whitley and I wanted her voice and everything. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know why because it is kind of annoying but I always consider my voice annoying now. But like, you I know, just... your voice is annoying. I think it's made for podcasts. I really, again, everyone, yo, I told y'all my voice ain't it. But, um... Yeah, so oh, that no, was that question. <laughs> Next. What other questions? Oh. Who had the question about love and hip-hop? Um, oh, it wasn't about that one. Oh, well, yeah. you can go ahead and answer Yeah, yeah. Well, I, so, um, uh, yeah, the question that I submitted was, um, what is, like, your goal for us, uh, like, as we come to the end of the semester? Like, what do you hope we leave this class? What do I hope you leave the class with? Um, and then I'll ask you the same with me, so prepare your hearts and minds. Um, I, um, my goal is that, um, that we're constantly, um, becoming better people. And, um, it has very little to do with the literature, right? Because you've already, um, at this point, your final paper is already turned in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and if I'm honest, uh, most of them are already graded. So, so it has very little to do with um, academia. The goals I have for the class, right? Because um, the reading that you were planning to do, you've, you've already done it or not done it, right? But my goal is that, like, when you leave the classroom space, that you're thinking more critically about the person standing beside you, even if you don't know um, who that person is, right? That you are thinking not so much about you, the individual, but about how you move through the world with other people, Um, which I know is kind of a big um, ask, but I continue to ask that every semester. And I remember, Jacob, you had a class with me earlier where I had that same, given myself that same task. Are we better people when we leave here? And I believe that we were when we left that classroom. And I also believe that we are when we leave this classroom. I think if class ended Friday, last Friday, that, that we will be we will have been better people at the end of the semester than we were at the beginning. And that's evidenced by the conversations we're able to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's always my goal. My goal is like, are we treating people fairly? Have we put humanity first, right? Are we giving people room to not have to live in their silences, right? Are we um, constantly disrupting those silences to give people voice to make them more visible in a world that um, tries to render them invisible, right? Because invisibility is painful. And so that's always my goal. And and if you could see yourself in any character in the show, regardless of, um, you know, 
their presentation of self, if you could see yourself in any character, um, then that that in all likelihood means you could see people you know in the world and in other characters, right? Mm-hmm. And that might help you hopefully understand them a little better. So. So as we're wrapping up on second thought, I have two more questions for you guys. So whoever wants to go first, feel free. But the first question is, out of all of the episodes that we have watched, all of the series, what would be your favorite episode and a quick for why? So I think if I had to absolutely choose... um, so I have two. You just have to deal with it. Okay. So like the episode of the Cosby show when um, Vanessa goes to see the wretched mm-hmm. is so great because Claire is like, Claire is such classic black mom in that episode when she's like going to have big fun. And so didn't you, Vanessa, didn't you go off to see the wretched and have big fun? So that episode is just like so classic to me. Um, and then the episode of Different World, um, the wedding episode, um, oh. because it's classic black television those moments both those that I just chose are just like cultural classically cultural black moments but but when Dwayne goes like goes for broke and he's like baby please you know and um and you know Papa Pope I mean uh you know his you know Joe Morton who plays who plays Byron in the show is like looking like what the hell are you doing and he's like I, I can't help it I love her and Diana That's, Carol is like die, die, just so die. my favorite just part of that scene is when Diane Carroll says die. Like, people don't even catch that, but please go back and watch it. Right. Because it's when he, is, pro- yeah, when he is-, is professing his love for her and, uh, and Diane Carroll goes, die, just, just die. die. Like, stood up and Dude, like, every time I watch that episode, I literally t- want to tell people to die. Just <laughs> it's just so much magic came together in that one. Because Dwayne also goes for broke, and I was like, "You don't, you don't co-op their whole wedding now. You better get married on his dime. That's real rude." He, or on her dime. I totally forgot he just started reciting. Yeah, oh, he's like, happened. you know, started shouting out, you know, whatever. And but but. Diane Carroll saying die in that scene for me makes that scene when she and you gotta watch it because you gotta see her hand movements and her leg like at the moment where she's saying die she's also <laughs> dismissing him like die you know it's so great so those are probably sick oh so great yeah. you're welcome that I told y'all about and that you, you got, and I yeah yeah you're great um, my favorites, um, which I also have two, but they're both from a different world, so okay. it's fine. Um, the first one is going to be Doctor War's Hell, yeah, um, where Dwayne is trying to avoid um, taking his class. class, yeah, and that's sort of like how I approach teachers and I'm like I know I need to work with you um and it's it's low-key how I was like Dr. Charles yes so it was exactly how it was but she was Dwayne and I was it's fine I was currently it's fine um but and then the second one is probably gonna be Mammy Dearest yeah um which is both my favorite and the most painful episode for me to watch um, but the work that they did at the very end where Kim, after explaining, she was like, I, I was a Nubian princess and they yeah. told me I was a Jemima and I couldn't even correct them. Like I, I related to Kim the most. Me that too, episode. Actually. It was, it, it, uh, it spoke to my childhood a lot. Um, and also and she one, becomes like 
at the end of that episode, how the she takes Nikki Giovanni's poem and she yes. wears that head wrap and she becomes hella badass. Like, it's, she's it so beautiful, too. I just, I felt really empowered after that episode. I still, it still plays in my mind every night before I go to sleep since we watched it. Like my chest gets tight. Um, She was so, so beautiful and she was so powerful and she was all things. So she was Tony K. Mubara all the way through. And I was just, I'm I'm astounded by that work. Okay. Okay. Those are both, all four. Both. Okay. Those are four uh, iconic moments. So, the last question to wrap up this particular segment is what show, what episode do you think deserves the proper ending? Yeah, uh, what episode, what show do you think deserves a proper ending, a continuing or a reboot for the new generation? So, um, I don't know about a reboot necessarily, but I think yes, of course, Girlfriends deserves I think um, an, ending. an ending, right? Um, but I think Moesha deserves a proper ending. I, if you've ever seen the end of Moesha, it's quite troubling. I think um, Miles gets kidnapped or something, and right, you see your face? That's how I was looking when I realized one of the more episodes after that. Like, I was like, wait, what? He gets kidnapped? Listen, it was real troubling. Um, plus, they, um, in that show, when they have Frank to have a um, a child that he hasn't claimed all these years, but he's been a great uncle to, as it were, Dorian becoming his son and whatever, does something to Shirley Ralph, um, the woman, right? She she has a similar reaction that um, that uh, Florida Evans character had, um, you know, that that they have in Good Times about, you know, why would you tear this black man up like this? And that really does change the caliber of the show when Dorian becomes his son. And not you could have kept him on a show as a nephew. We had Fresh Prince, but you know what I mean. But um, I did, I think it deserves a proper ending, and so does Girlfriends. And if there was any show I'd like to see continue, um, perhaps a reboot, maybe I don't know. Um, would be either living single or girlfriends. I think I think living single would probably be renamed at this point since they were all partnered at the end or something. Um, but seeing them live their magical black lives after that would would be great um, because that the end of shows does some psychological kind of damage to me anyway. Like when I'm watching them and I'm like, it's about to end. So I don't even go into the last season of the show. I'd be like, it's about to end. I start remembering ahead, you know? Um, but I think girlfriends, um, for everything it did, it, I mean, I could see it as a, as a reboot. That might be pretty, that might be pretty dope or whatever, but I think Moesha deserves an ending. Mm. Yeah. I agree. I would want to see girlfriends come back. Um, because we get sort of the, adult version and insecure yeah i mean granted by the platform that it's on it's on hbo so like they can they can do more and they're about the same age as those those women were in girlfriends but i'm saying when we get because joan was so um uh what's the word ambitious and all of that kind of stuff and then we get to see um tracy ellis ross in and the multiple shows she's been in since since Read Between the Lines was a right. sleeper amazing. So I think Read Between the Lines was great and um and it was so short and whatever. But, but I she think she left for blackish. Yeah, but when she left for blackish and we get her brilliance in blackish, I think she would be a star as Joan again. I think I think that she would be dope. And so I would love to see that. That would be kind of cool. Um plus they are all women who have um 
matured even beyond what we saw in girlfriends and they were stars already there. I mean, when I say stars, I mean, they were already women who owned their, their lives at that, that moment. I would love to see what Lynn is up to at this moment. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I don't mean the car. I mean the woman, I mean the character, right? Like what, how is her life? So I was like, I know what Persia White is doing, but I don't know what Lynn is. That's what I mean. Like, right. So I would love, that would be pretty, I mean, I think that would be amazing to see, um, Girlfriends, girlfriends uh, as mothers too. If they you know are what? mothers, and the other one I would like to see rebooted because it's current is the Carmichael show because that was a sleeper. That show is great, okay, um, but that was a sleeper, and you know people, you know whatever. You know what I should have asked? I should have asked if you could see a reunion of any of the shows. Which one would you want? Like a reunion, like just a reunion girlfriends. special. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> because th- I could see them being up. Oh, I would like to see Living Single, a reunion, yeah. just a reunion, a Living Single, because I get a reunion of a different world, and we see those pretty regularly, actually. But it's something about, like, that would be pretty amazing to see, like, Living Single. Can you imagine the whole crowd in, in at that reunion singing the theme song to Living Single, the way folks sing the theme song to a different world? When, mm-hmm. when they, re- oh, my goodness, it's... It's just like... I don't know, 90s black TV like theme songs are songs. Like mm-hmm. put them on the radio, they're gonna go to number one. And I was just like Even the Fresh Prince theme yeah. song, people still sing it and still They play it at the bars, like I mean, but to be clear, time. y'all don't know the second verse, so yeah. y'all really be looking oh, like I, <laughs> I don't remember that episode when they played the whole extended trailer. Oh, That's one of the reasons I showed that at the beginning of class because when we were watching what all those intros <laughs> One of the reasons that I showed that is because I was like, they hadn't seen him sitting in first class talking mm-hmm. about like, you know, and so um, I wanted to show that extended version because y'all came back so uh, predictably um, confused. Like, I'm sorry, did you, is this a remix? No, mm-hmm. no, that's original. There was a question you had, I think, DJ. Oh, about, um, I, okay, hold on. Let me, let me, let me get it Before out. we end this section. Okay, so do shows like Love and Hip Hop or Flavor of Love uh, have a negative effect on the image of black women. Interesting. Do shows, uh, purportedly reality shows, um, have a negative impact on the image of black women? Mm Mm-hmm. Can we go past, like, also, like, Love and Hip Hop and couple like, Housewives? Housewives and all that? Okay, go ahead. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the the shortest answer is going to be yes and no. Um, I know, no I know, right? But, uh, yes, in that um, these shows and these portrayals. So, we have to remember that reality shows are scripted not reality. reality. They're scripted, and then they're edited heavily mm-hmm. to portray a one-type being. Um, and so we get these caricatures coming out of these shows. Mm-hmm. So to say, like, is it harmful to get these one type characters more often than not? Um, and that being fed to the population? Yes, because a lot of people don't want to think past that portrayal that they see. Um, but knowing that um, these women are still themselves. So to say that um, it's negative would be to deny a woman who has a background like, I talk like this because I talk like this and this is who I am, or I do this because I do this and this is who I am. So um, I, I believe that we need to at once like recognize all experiences and see that there is um, an authenticity in whatever experience that they're showing, even though we're only getting one part of it. 
um, and to show like to to add validation to that experience. Um, and also saying like if if a black woman is mad, she deserves to be mad because she's a human. If a black woman is X Y Z, she deserves to be X Y Z because she's a person before she is anything else, and before um, we apply any other social connotations to her body um, that are deserved or not. But I mean, if it's not magical, like I don't want it. I so my short answer is no. Um, for several reasons. One, um, I echo Ty's sentiment about this doing harm when we create a particular kind of black woman. We talked about this in our conversation about Cosby, right? Creating a particular kind of black family, like as if that is the only kind that is allowed to exist. Although he's rewriting a particular narrative. I digress. I think no, because um, these women are just that, right? They're women. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't speak for all black women, any more than your current president speaks for all white folks, right? Um, and I think, I think more than anything, if anything harms portrayals of black women, it might be um, the ways in which these women are are edited and presented to the public, right? That they that we don't get their full selves, and and why would we, right? Because it's for ratings, not for you to feel like these humans exist and are your neighbors, right? Um, so I would say no, they don't um, harm portrayals of black women because because we are we as black women are the most probably the most scrutinized of all uh, women on the face of the earth. That's a big argument to make, right? But but um, and there is I'm being a little bit hyperbolic there, but not really. You know, um, so how much more harm, right? Like, I mean, you know, um, but also I think that there's something to be said about, it's one thing to say, are they aspirational black women? Not for me, right? Like I, I don't watch reality TV, not because I'm, you know, it is beneath me, but I don't watch reality TV because it doesn't interest me. Right. Um, but I don't think they're doing me harm in their portrayals. They annoy the hell out of me sometimes, but they don't necessarily um, do harm to the portrayals of black women and how much more harm can be done to black women who are already who are already thought of in a particular way anyway. Right. Um, So I think but I do think that there's something in the question. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that means that we're constantly being asked to evaluate and reevaluate our presentations of self, whereas um, if you look at someone like the Duggars, right, their TV show, their reality show or whatever, and they had a whole pedophile on their show or rapist or something, or what, what, what was he, what did he do? What? He molested his younger sister. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was accused of, of, of assaulting someone. Anyway, yeah. but but they get a spinoff show. And that doesn't do harm to this particular community of folk who uh, believe and exist and live this way, right? Um, but... That's in that conversation we were having about the worst of white folks, right? Like how that these these folks are removed from other white people or whatever. So I think it's kind of interesting to me that that we have to ask ourselves that about what black what harm black folk are doing, right? Like they are who they are, right? These women are who they are, and and if I'm honest, they're probably business women, and they're probably portraying, yeah, <laughs> they're probably portraying what they know, you know, what gives this show ratings, which gives them a check, which you know, they're probably being they're probably being quite pragmatic about their approach. I can't say for sure because I don't know them, um, you know, but I don't think that they do harm. I think the way we consume them might do harm, and the way they've been edited might do harm. 
Like you just can't have rich black women. They gotta be all right. They can't just be. They can't just have access to wealth. They have to be a problem. Their access to wealth has to be problematic, right? Which also is talking about a particular standard of living, like you know, which is also to say that there's something that needs to be fixed, right? Um, Which is, I just wouldn't want y'all to tell me how to live. So I'm like, I'm gonna just let these women live. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? I see you. (laughs) Well, does anyone have any more questions? We were all good here. Okay. Well, we got some fantastic and phenomenal answers to very few questions. So I hope you guys were as indulgent in this conversation as we were, but we're going to wrap this up and head over to shout out to our cousins down the block. Shout out to our cousins down the block. All right, you guys. So this is our final shout out to our cousin down the block. And we would like to give the honor to our two special guests, Dr. Charles and Ty. So anyone y'all want to shout out? So I want to shout out uh, Michelle Obama because, well, she's Michelle Obama, our hashtag forever floatus. Uh, I am in the middle of her book, Becoming. If you haven't gotten that, go cop that. Like it's got like 725,000 sales in the in its first week made Amazon um, Amazon's number one spot in its first week. And so I'm um, not to mention, um, you know, I know she had some help writing it and all of that kind of stuff, but it's just so beautifully written. And so when I thought she wouldn't give us any more, she continued to get, she gave us this and it was just the food I needed. So um, I just want to shout out Michelle Obama may, may uh, from my mouth to God's ears, maybe we one day meet, uh, perhaps work together, you know, and talk all things black girls. So yeah, shout out to Michelle Obama. Um, I would like to shout out Jennifer Lewis this week. Um, she has been, <laughs> she's been giving me life these past few weeks. Um, and she gave me life going into the election Absolutely. on November 6th. So I am hella thankful and hella grateful for all the work that she has been doing for us, for the culture, for the community, energizing people, getting us out to vote. Um, I think she's played a fundamental role. And also, I mean, she's, she was killing it on a different world. And I was just French friends. French friends. Everything. She's tied her hand in everything black, honestly. Yeah, she's pretty brilliant. That's why the episode, like, A Rock, A River, Alina. Yes. That's the... And you can see the theater part of her um, in that episode. And she's a stage person first, it looks like. I know Jake Hills wanted to... Well, um, I just want to say... From the bottom of my soul, <laughs> uh, to God's ears, and back to you, Michael Bay Jordan. Um, I just want to shout you out for being sexy, being, you, uh, being sexy, being so like driven to being successful, just being a phenomenal human being. I love you. I love you. I love you. I know you love me back. So, <laughs> also, yeah. have y'all seen him and the, the um? The picture uh, for the the Creed poster, I, I posted it because I'm that person. He's so yes. damn oh, just just So congratulations on your new movie. I mean, you know, <laughs> we will be there. Going <laughs> up, but like, <laughs> yes. But also, um, we want to do a special shout out to everyone who had a hand in our podcast, everyone in our class. We have had a great year and we really enjoy stepping out of our comfort zone and putting on and click 
for you guys. So I hope you guys, um, no matter where you are in the world, you have enjoyed us. And if we continue on, we continue on. If we're not, we had a great time. Um, and let me just also add, ahead. right? Like, um, I a particular shout out to y'all, right? Like y'all took something that was not the easiest thing to do. Uh, to do a whole podcast on the on the things we talked about in class and translate it in a way that would would uh, give give you even more time to grapple with this stuff and y'all did it masterfully. I think um, you wouldn't even know um, after about the second episode that you were novices at this, right? And so shout out to each and every one of y'all for taking up this task. I know it was for a grade. Grades come out next week. Pray for them. Um, but like uh, you know, y'all did good, and I, I just wanted to shout y'all out for that. It was it was it's been a hell of a ride, and um. I I hope folks will go back and listen to the episodes. And also just shout out to all of our listeners. There are some people who randomly came up to me around campus like, I just want, I listen to your podcast. I'm like, <laughs> for real? They're like, yeah, it's really good. So shout out to absolutely every single person who listened to us trying to get a good grade. Like, y'all are the <laughs> real ones. And thank you for telling your friends. And just continue to listen and like be on the lookout for us in all of our future endeavors. And on that note, keep static. To stay black. Absolutely, say black. And say black. <laughs> now, cue the static. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>